The content of this program is sponsored by Make It Work Nevada. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More or the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. This is Carrie Kaufman, co-executive producer of American Dreams Reproductive Justice. Last week, you heard the first half of our episode, Birth Stories, in which we talked with Amy Quartz Koopman, Brenda Zamora, and our host and co-executive producer, Erica Washington. This is the second half. We start about eight minutes before we left off last week. Brenda's daughter has coded in front of her, then was put into an induced coma and trached. But Scarlett wasn't done yet. Brenda was about to head into a time where she would have to turn a screw every day in her infant's head to pull it apart. Amy is about to be rushed to surgery for her C-section. Erica has just taken her Ambien. Also, yes, this is the same Brenda Zamora, who is now a school board trustee in Las Vegas. She won after our conversation. The first voice you will hear will be Brenda's, followed by Erica, followed by Amy. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. Black women and black pregnant people's bodies have historically and continue to be under surveillance and monitored and controlled. I wrote a report called Women's Watch that predicted that there would be overlap between the white supremacist movement and the anti-abortion movement. Demanding an anti-racist healthcare system. What we are looking at is reducing the need for C-sections, which reduces the cost to the citizens of this state. When I woke up, I woke up to like the worst pain ever. I want to say I was like seven centimeters. At that point, I was I was afraid of having to go back home with as, as a single father. I trust women, and I think that women have an inalienable right to liberty and to decide what happens to their own bodies. Three months later after that, we did her second cranial surgery and they had to put some distractors in her head. So every day I had to kind of twist the screws morning and afternoon so it slowly was stretching her skull out to, you know, build that tissue. So because her her skull was growing like a cone shape. So we went through that all yeah, that year was 20 2014. 2014. Yeah. There's things now that as I talk about, I get very emotional because at that point I had to suppress a lot of my feelings. Like I was just trying to figure things out how I can be, you know, there for her. And I never was able to to express whatever I was feeling. So now there's a lot of the times that I talk about it and I still don't know, right? Like it's just so much suppressed stuff because I was just getting by and getting through. We get to his place and I lay on the couch. He lays on the floor under me. And at some point I wake up and I remember bumping up and down the hallway towards his bathroom because I think I have to go to the bathroom. And I remember hitting this wall and that wall and this wall and I make it to the bathroom and I sit down on the toilet and I start pushing. And at some point in my brain, it clicks like 
something is not right. Like I'm not doing the right thing, but I could not put the pieces together in my brain. My brain was not working correctly. I was, I've never been drowsy in that way before. And so I just, and I just jumped up and I remember going back down the hallway and I remember hitting him on his back. I'm hitting him. I'm like, wake up, wake up, wake up. We got to get up. We got to get up. We got to go to the hospital. We got to go now. We have to get out of here. I have to go now. I'm like, this baby is coming. And he's like, oh, and he's trying to grab, you know, our other daughter. I am out the door. I am out the door into the car. I'm just gone. And so we get to the hospital that's closest to him. This is a different hospital. They don't have any power. And they're, on, they're running on a generator. So when we pull up, like the automatic doors to the emergency room don't open automatically, I remember. And we're kind of banging on the door, what have you. And they come towards and I'm like, I'm in labor. I'm in labor. And so they bring me in. They check me. And he's like, yes, you're in labor. And I'm just so delirious. And, and, and they're like, well, we can deliver you here, but I think you have enough time to get to this other hospital that actually has power. They have, they have power now over there. So we're, so they're escorting me by ambulance at this point. And so I'm in the ambulance and I remember very little except for apologizing over and over and over again to the paramedics saying, I'm so sorry. I have not brushed my teeth yet. I am, I am out here and I've not brushed my teeth. I'm so sorry. You know, she's like, it's fine. I'm like, it's not fine. This is, you don't come outside. I'm like, I am saying all kind of things. And so we make it to that hospital and he is separate because he went to go drop off our three-year-old at someone else's house so that he could get back to the hospital. So at this point, it's like 4.45, five o'clock and they are having a hard time finding his heartbeat again. It's like in and out and in and out. I'm just in constant contractions. And by 5.17, they've lost his heartbeat for five minutes. And they say, okay, it's time for a C-section. And they had me under anesthesia and him born at 5:24 with my second pregnancy I was like okay I'm going to go to the doctor and make sure everything's good and I went to my OB and I will never forget this because I felt guilty because she said you messed up by being pregnant again and you are risking your life so the more kids you have the more life you take like more time you're taking away from your life and I never went back because she she was basically kind of just yelling at me for being pregnant and I Never went back to the OB because of that. That kind of sat with me. The My OB kind of just being like, you should have not done this. And I didn't even go to high risk. I was just kind of, it was also during a time that, that my oldest was going through a lot of surgical things. Like most of, I think my pregnancy was in the ICU with my oldest. Um, so my second pregnancy was kind of non-existent. I think... No one, no one knew I was pregnant until I actually gave birth. Um, and it was still premature, but she was thankfully smaller. She didn't have a lot of the issues. It was just she wouldn't eat. She wouldn't eat. So she was in the ICU for six weeks, too. But hers, it was a little bit smoother. It was just a heart murmur, a small brain aneurysm, which they say it's all kind of normal stuff for premature babies. But... I tried to put it in the back of my mind that I was pregnant because I needed to focus on Scarlett. And it was also a time that I was surrounded by very old school mentalities of like, you can't abort. Like, that's the worst thing you can do. 
my partner at the time was pushing for me to have an abortion because of the situation we were in with our first child. And I just couldn't go through with it, which led to the separation, which led to me being a single mom with two kids. So it was something I try to ignore as much as I can. I was in a really bad, you know, I think it was a mix of postpartum depression, a mix of just depression of everything we had been through with my oldest at that time. I slept most of my pregnancy, my second pregnancy. I would just get up. I would barely eat. It, I was very skinny. I, it was very unhealthy. How old were you with the second pregnancy? 19. And her name? Natalie. We're in the room, and the bits and pieces that I remember is that my water broke, and I kept saying, I'm peeing on myself, and she's like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, something's wrong, and I'm talking, and I'm just like, I want some drugs, because I'm like, don't wait till the last minute and tell me I can't have any drugs. And she's like, it's already too late. You're getting ready to have this baby. Because like I said, I start off real slow, and next thing you know, here comes this kid. But the thing I can't tell you is I don't really remember the faces of anybody in that room. I don't know the name of the doctor. Like I could look it up because I'm sure we have the medical record somewhere. But I don't I don't know any of these people because I've never been to this hospital before. But I also my my brain cells are not connecting right. And so they start asking me am I on drugs. And I'm pretty sure they drug tested me for everything. And because they couldn't they're asking me questions and I'm. I don't know, I'm probably babbling. I'm probably over this way and that way and saying this. And I kept saying, you have to wait until, until he got there. We can't have the baby until he gets here. All these things are going on. And I'm just, I am delirious. I am completely delirious. Like literally as I'm talking about this and I'm trying to grasp and remember what happened, I can sort of remember the room, but it felt like this big giant room. And it probably wasn't even as big as it was. I was 524, seven o'clock. <laughs> 7 p.m. I'm back in my labor suite. I have not met my son, of course. And I'm starting to wake up like I'm, they're bringing me out of the general anesthesia. I'm starting to wake up. And I see my husband holding my son and walking towards me like he's going to give me the baby, right? My doula is next to me. And a number of things happen. I'm thinking, I want to hold my baby, one. Number two, what is that gushing between my legs? Because it just felt like a faucet running. And while I was thinking that, I said something to that effect. I said, what's the gushing to my doula? And she said to the nurse, her lips are turning blue. And I was gone again. Like they had me rushed back to surgery again. They were (laughs) putting me back under general. And as they're doing that, the doctors are lifting me off of the gurney and onto the OR table. One of them is telling me, we're going to try and stop the bleeding. You're hemorrhaging. We're going to try and stop the bleeding. There is a slight possibility that if we can't stop the bleeding, we will have to do a hysterectomy. And I said, okay, save my life. Scarlett was about seven months when I I found out I was pregnant. With Scarlett, it was just, I think at that point I was just in uh, flight mode. You know, when they say fly or flight, like I was just on autopilot because I, there's things that now as, 
that I'm older, I'm like, how did I just not think about, you know, certain things? And I was just fully focused and immersed, immersed in, in the hospital life in Scarlet. I would eat lunch there. I would never leave the hospital. I was just there. I had to take a bus because I didn't have a car, you know, taking the bus back and forth and just writing in a journal for her and just being there. I learned so much, though, just being with the nurses, which is what inspired me to, you know, eventually one day be a nurse. Just not only have any lasting complications? No. They did tell me, you know, because of the small brain aneurysm she had at birth that, you know, she might be behind. But so far, she's been doing great. You know, she is one of my biggest worries um, because I don't know, you know, if there is something, when it will happen. Um, they both, though, unfortunately, you know, are legally, you know, have vision impairment for the rest of their life. But my brain only remembers things the way the Ambien would let me. And so it wasn't until afterwards that I find out that people sleepwalk on this, you know, on this drug and all these different things. And I had never taken it before and I haven't taken it since. Um, but it made the experience so disappointing because I don't really remember. Like all these things I'm saying are just bits and pieces that partially some things that he told me that happened. And it feels like a dream. Like that whole labor feels like a dream. And then afterwards, they just kept asking me, have you ever had prenatal care? And I'm like, yes, I went to the doctor on a regular basis. You know, did you take prenatal vitamins? Yes. You know, what drugs were you using? I'm like, I don't use drugs. And they did not believe me because partially probably the way I was acting and I couldn't control how I was acting. Um, and I'd never been to that hospital before, but also because I would have been a 23 year old black unwed mother on Medicaid. So I think I was treated as such. And so it was an experience that I wish upon no one whatsoever. And the next thing I know, I wake up in the ICU with a tube down my throat because I was intubated. Oh, three IVs and a pick line. And my husband walking toward me, <laughs> like being really gentle and tender and like quiet. And I said to him, I couldn't say anything to him because I had the tube down my throat, but I, I was very agitated and he, I was trying to write. I was motioning that I wanted a pen and a paper to write. And he gave me a piece of paper and I said, no music because then the horrible elevator music that they were playing in my bed was just awful. <laughs> and he said, that's when I knew that you were going to be okay. You hated the music. I was just thankful that she was going to be okay because at, at that point I was I was afraid of having to go back home with as, as a single father that was my my biggest worry seven years later I decided to have another baby um I'm much older I was in a better situation much better situation I you know was engaged and we decided to have just a baby um and try to just do everything right this time her name is Aurora she is a year and a half and it was just a whole different experience. I tell people all the time, I, 
she's definitely given me the experience of being a first-time mother, like, and I air quote, right, like a regular first-time mother. This time I was able to interview some OBGYNs because I had learned that we're allowed to do that through the work that I was doing at the time. So I did go to about four different OBGYNs until I felt like this person was the right one and she was very understanding, she was great. So we had a really good relationship. And I think that's important because if you have a good relationship with your OB, you will be more you know, open to going to your appointments, making sure you don't miss any appointments and everything. So I was very on top of my OB appointments at that time with, with this pregnancy. I was at high risk because of the diabetes and I was attending every you know, appointment there. And I had a list of questions every time because I, I didn't want to go through what I went you know, with my first two. So I definitely was always, hey, have you checked her cranio? Does the size look correct? Is there any extra fingers that I should be, you know, worried about? <laughs> like it was a list of things that I already had that I was really on it. And every time I'm like, okay, can you check this again? Can you check this again? And I was very careful with my diabetes this time around. I had the support of my partner. You know, he was my person to give me my insulin shot every <laughs> every few hours. And... Unfortunately, it was still very difficult because my liver was failing through the pregnancy. So I had all these liver issues. Um, I had ICP, which is kind of the bile acids leaking into your blood system. So you get really itchy. So I would never sleep. Four months in, it was already kind of like terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. I, it was, I felt bad for everyone around me. I was miserable. But at least I was... I think had more support and was better prepared. And when the ICP situation happened about the bile acids, I did my own research and I went back to my OB and I said, hey, can we try this medicine? These folks over here in this state are doing this. Like I was able to kind of give her different options that we can possibly try. So I was armed and ready. <laughs> I had an induction date and it was at 37 weeks because that's when, you know, it's the is considered full term, but I, I didn't make it that far. I didn't make it that far because a month before I had the baby, I was having signs of um, high blood pressure. This whole pregnancy, because I already knew everything, because of what I went through with my oldest, I actually went to school for a medical assistant. So I knew the basic, you know, how to do triage, how to do all that stuff and check vital signs. So my whole pregnancy, I was checking my vital signs. And a month before I gave birth, I noticed that my blood pressure was going up. And I flagged it to my doctor. So we started keeping an eye on it more. It was a day I was having a bad, bad headache. And I like napped and I said, wait a minute, this is not okay. I ended up calling my best friend to come over and check my blood pressure for me. And it was so high. I was rushed to the hospital. And they were like, oh, your blood pressure seems normal. The thing that I knew is that I have low blood pressure. So what seems normal to them is high for me. So I told them no. And I was able to give them a list of my previous high blood pressure, you know, readings. And they also had a list on their computer. And I said, these are my readings. Like, it's high. My, my blood pressure is high for me right now. And, and they came back and they were just like, we're going to have to induce you because your blood pressure is high right now. I said, I know. <laughs> there was no reason to give me an Ambien. 
There was no reason whatsoever. And I wasn't hysterical. And I think the fact that I was not hysterical and I was not overreacting or I and I or I wasn't, you know, in so much pain that I was screaming or what have you, whatever that was. It was just like, oh, well, you just can't be in labor then. It's like because it but it shows up differently for everyone. But I don't believe that I was given the right in the autonomy to say that, okay, well, it might show up different for her and how it feels and how it feels to to actively be in labor. I mean, by the end, it was quite painful. And I was, you know, yelping and, and what have you, but I just wasn't there yet. A different doctor performed the hysterectomy. And he, <laughs> he did a phenomenal surgery. He performed a phenomenal surgery. He left part of my cervix just because he wanted to take as little as possible. So he took my uterus and my fallopian tubes and left my ovaries, my broad ligament and a bit of my cervix. But I later found out from my husband that I was in surgery for like five hours. And it was only because I had been running throughout my entire pregnancy. The last time I ran was three days before I gave birth. And my heart was strong and my lungs were strong. And that's why they were able to do the surgery, to be in surgery and try for as long as they did. I got 23 units of blood transfusion, which is twice my body's blood. Um, and so the first time I went, I went back and they tried to stop the bleeding because it was, um, I was bleeding vaginally, which was weird because I didn't give birth vaginally, but I was bleeding vaginally. And so they stuffed me with like giant hospital tampon to keep the blood from coming out so that that it'll clot. It didn't work. I started bleeding from my C-section incision. So they had to cut me back open for that. Try and stop the bleeding that way. Sew me back up. It didn't work. So they had to cut me open a third time. Yeah, a third time. Or pull the stitches. And that was when they pulled the uterus out and they tried to do like the, you know, the paddles that they use for a chest compression? They use that on my uterus. (laughs) They had it sitting out on my chest and they were using paddles because it wasn't contracting. That was the whole problem is that my uterus had been contracting so hard for so long that it was like a muscle that just snapped and wouldn't work anymore. So when my, when the surgeon went out to tell my husband, it's not working, we're going to have to do the C-section. Do you consent? He was like, yeah, sure. (laughs) You know, um, But then the doctor also asked if my husband wanted a husband stitch. And Paul was like, what? (laughs) What's that? And he said, oh, well, some men ask that when their wives tear, you just add an extra stitch so she's tighter than she was before. It took me 10 years, but I was like, it is astounding that that doctor offered to sexually assault me violently so that my husband could have better quote unquote better sex with me after this trauma oh that wasn't there wasn't that wasn't a, a 
permission that he just told me he did it. He just said that that was, that was something that was done. That was like after the fact, that was like a day later, he was like, Oh, by the way, just kind of an aside, this is something that I did. Um, we call this the, the husband stitch. We just in just, just described the procedure and what it was. And it's like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs> and I didn't even think anything about, about that until, uh, later but i thought it was kind of weird that he just told me about it but yeah it wasn't like a do you want this to happen it was just it was just done this time around i learned about my liver situation so i had it with my second pregnancy and i never knew because i never went to the doctor because actually what i did with natalie when i was pregnant my middle one i went into the hospital because i at that point i was itchy and I didn't know what it was so I went into a hospital and I told him I said I am going to kill myself because I cannot sleep I haven't slept in three days I'm going to kill myself you need to get this baby out of me because this she's causing this itchiness and they they popped my my water like they they broke my water and and I had birth I had her at 32 weeks but I didn't know what it was and then when it started happening with my third and my last pregnancy I, I told my OB, I said, hey, I'm really itchy. And she told me, oh, this is what it might be. We took some tests, you know, they did blood work. And when I found out what it was, I said, I think I had this with my second pregnancy. And I, I never knew about it. So he did it. Apparently, well, and that's, uh, that's actually interesting for me to know. Because I don't know if this is too much information. I know that I'm not the only person that has dealt with this after birth trauma. But it's not a commonly talked about thing. There is a thing that happens after or during vaginal trauma where the vaginal walls shut down. My vagina was closed. And it was just like my body shut it down. Um. And that's a, like, that's a thing. And I asked Dr. Gold, I asked my other surgeon who did the surgery and she was like, oh, I've never heard of that. And I asked Dr. Gold, should like sex be hard or painful? And he was like, nope, should be easy. You had a C-section. And now I'm like, well, okay, first of all, I was gushing blood. And apparently also I had a stitch, a husband's stitch. So, of course, my body was like, nope, we're not doing this. What the? Oh, my word. (laughs) My husband, he's like, I can't go through this because he was with me every step of the way. And he he said, I can't go through this. Um, Apparently, like my OB, when I gave birth to the baby, like pulled them aside and was like, you know, like y'all just cannot have any more kids it's very dangerous for her like it would be unfortunate for you to have to make a choice um if if she does get pregnant again between a child and and your wife (laughs) yeah yeah even though it was a great pregnancy this time around like i feel very lucky i feel very lucky that i experienced you know being loved during my pregnancy like there is times that i i want it again right i want to be pregnant and, and get my belly rubbed and just have those moments but it's for my health it's 
the worst thing that I could possibly do. And I still have, you know, my other two to think about, so I can't risk my life that way. Even though I'm better prepared and I have all the tools. <laughs> all of the children talked about in this episode are doing well. And all three of us mothers are thriving. This is American Dreams, Reproductive Justice. The birth stories you have heard today are Amy Koopman, Brenda Zamora, and me, Erica Washington. In our next episode of American Dreams, Reproductive Justice, we'll look at the impact of midwives and how the medical system treats them. Thank you for listening to American Dreams, Reproductive Justice created, hosted, and executive produced by Erica Washington. Also executive produced by Carrie Kaufman with Overthinking Media, LLC. Outro music by Tane, written by Joshua Suddeth, licensed by Soundstrike. Incidental music by The Flowbots. Artwork by Brent Holmes. This podcast is empowered by the donations to Make It Work Nevada. <laughs>